enter the Ebony Tower podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Ebony Tower podcast. It's Rachel here. And it's Daphne with her. And today we have our first installment of Ask Ebony Anything. So we've collected your inquiries, your questions, your gripes via email and on our Facebook page. And today we'll be answering five questions that we've selected about the PhD process. Yes, uh, let's get started. Uh, The first question is about the beginning stages of the doctoral process. And it starts, Dear Ebony, I'm starting my PhD program in the fall. I've been toying with the idea of doing some blue underlights or even blue highlights in my hair, but I don't know how much emphasis PhD programs put on your appearance. Will I be judged? Do you have any advice? (laughs) That's a good question that I feel like really depends on your discipline. Do you agree, Mm -hmm. Daphne? Like I agree. And I felt, well, I feel like academia in general, I almost feel like is one of the only places where you can still be respected and have an alternative look. Now, you know, I don't know about going too crazy, but I've seen people with like those, I don't know what you call them, like those big gauges, holes in their ears and long hair and and wild hair. I know someone in my program, she actually does experiment with different colors, you know, not her whole head, but she'll have like pink and blues and green. She's, she's a a white woman. Um, So I feel like there is, is possible experimentation. I feel like maybe you want to wait until you get there just to see the culture of your department, kind of what Rachel's saying. Right. I think also, uh, so I'm an anthropologist and for anthropologists, I think it's pretty liberal. Like I can go to the professional meetings and see people wearing chucks, wearing like, you know, the hippie sandals. Uh, I forget what they're called, those brown Birkenstocks, you know, to like a <laughs> professional meeting. So yeah. we're pretty open about how people present themselves. But I'm not sure if you're in the STEM fields or maybe in engineering. I mean, mm-hmm. perhaps I'm leading with the disciplinary stereotypes here, but I don't know that other uh, other departments are as receptive or open to uh, non-normative ways of dressing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think a good idea might be to maybe go to orientation, check out the culture of your department and just see how liberal or conservative they are with dressing. Again, it might be like a social science STEM thing, as as Rachel mentioned. I personally probably wouldn't do anything too crazy before knowing what type of environment I'm going into. But I will say in general, I think of all the places, academia in general is a more liberal place or a place where you can kind of experiment a little bit more. But, you know, it is probably disciplinary specific. That was a good question. So I'm going to read the second one. Okay. 
Um, so our second question is, what do you do when your research can be qualitative or quantitative? Keeping in mind that your chair loves qualitative with an exclamation point. okay that's interesting so it sounds like this person is maybe has questions that could go either way but they have an advisor that is very strong on one thing at least that's how this question reads to me and I honestly feel like this is where your committee comes in because one thing I learned in my very first doctoral program is that you let your questions guide your methodology. So if you are asking questions that are best answered using quantitative methods, answer them using the appropriate uh, methods. If you have a question that could maybe be well suited to a mixed methods approach, do that, but realize that your advisor is one person on an entire committee and your committee members should all be bringing something. I know my dissertation is mixed methods. I'm doing both qualitative and quantitative uh, methodology. My advisor is an ethnographer, but two of my committee members are quant only researchers. So I I feel confident in doing the project that I ultimately want to do because I built a committee that could fill in any gaps that one person could be missing in terms of substantive uh, topics or methodological issues. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't see any reason why you couldn't take a more mixed methods approach and that your advisor wouldn't be open to that as well. Uh, They should be, you know. And also by incorporating a research project that uses multiple methods, I find that also it covers bases for the future, whether you decide to stay in academia or go into industry, that you can say, I've successfully done research with both qualitative and quantitative analysis techniques. So yeah, win-win. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. One of the reasons I wanted mixed methods dissertation is because I wanted to be able to market myself on the job market as a mixed methods researcher. I do both because I know a lot of people collect so much data for their dissertation that what they actually write for the dissertation is just a small piece of a larger data puzzle. So you might not even use everything, but hey, give yourself some leeway. You know, and to go along with that, so you don't use everything, but what is genius or maybe frightening, horrific, is that (laughs) after you complete your dissertation with all of that extra data that you had to put aside in order to tighten your argument in the dissertation, you can go back to that data set and use it to publish articles. Absolutely. Look at Rachel with that tea. Mm. You know, I'm just in that process (laughs) right now. (laughs) Okay, question number three. Dear Ebony, I recently found out that I earned the reputation of being difficult within my department. Faculty members are now using my reputation of being challenging as a reason to 
not give me opportunities such as summer research fellowships or the opportunity to teach my own class. They suggest that my actions, which have largely revolved around calling out problematic things in my department as inappropriate. Do you have any experience with this? What should I do? Oh man, that's, that's tough. Um, well, first thing that this brings to mind for me is to remember that academia as perhaps liberal seeming as it is, uh, also has its aspects of politics and hierarchy. And as a graduate student, we're pretty low on the power scale. Um, so it's important throughout uh, your PhD career and, and process to really navigate the spaces of power in your department and in your university very carefully. Um, do you want to add something to that, Daphne? No, I I absolutely agree. I won't name any names, but I definitely have a very good friend in my doctoral program. And this person has a habit of, you know, just kind of saying what what comes to mind, sometimes popping off on (laughs) faculty members. Yes, and it's, it really is popping off. I'm like, you really said that? Did you really say that? Um, and I think after this person actually has also missed out on some opportunities uh, because of, you know, this reputation, they have been able to turn it around by building bridges with new faculty members trying to find some allies, but also realizing, like Rachel said, this is a very political environment. Mm, You know, I'm not going to say bite your tongue and just kind of go along to get along, but also understanding that even as a graduate student, this is, this is your career, you are a professional. And I, I approach graduate school as in, okay, this is me training for my long-term career. This is just one stop in a longer career. And you don't want to burn bridges. So it is about addressing any gripes or complaints you have in the most professional way possible, of course, without being there and knowing how you're critiquing people. It's hard for me to say, but if my friend is any indication of how, like, you know, sometimes we just say things that come to mind and it can just like, you know, rub people the wrong way. I would just say, think about how you would want to be addressed with certain critiques. Because I know as a graduate student, I'm used to people, you know, having sometimes negative things to say about my work. And I think there's a way you can say it to where people will receive your feedback. And there's a way that you can say it to where people will just be very turned off, not only by your feedback, but you. And so I think keeping that in mind, um, but I don't think you should hold your tongue, but I think it is learning how to be tactful with how you give your critiques. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah, it totally does. And I just want to add to uh, maybe because I'm more of a strategic person, a minded person. So you have this problem already. And to me, part of the solution may be to acquire leverage, right? Um, and so one thing that can give you leverage if you just find yourself not being able to um or you find yourself being kept out of, systematically kept out of specific opportunities through the university, then maybe it means you need to get or try to get at least some outside funding and alliances that will give you some sort of leverage in your department. Uh, No matter what anyone thinks of you in the department, if you win a forward grant, like they can't deny that you're an essential member of that community now, right? Uh, So that's also something to think about to acquire leverage through winning alliances with other, uh, mm-hmm. through outside funding agencies, because money, unfortunately, uh, means a lot, right, in academia, but also in your alliances in terms of like bringing in a big name. And again, I'm speaking strictly strategically speaking and not talking about what my personal values are, but bringing in a rock star academic to your committee is also a kind of power move in a department. Yes, I agree. My friend did that. And it's just kind of like, yeah, you can't do anything but say this person respects what you're doing, like what you're doing. It makes it hard for other other professors to like really mm, talk too bad about you, in, in my opinion. Right. They can't discount you. They can't. Mm. Look at that. Oh, another (laughs) solid piece of advice. Oh, Rachel, you're so good at this. (laughs) Well, let's see. I don't know. We got two more. They might be difficult. Let's see what happens. Um, So our next letter says, Dear Ebony, I decided to move back home to finish dissertation writing, and I'm having such a difficult time staying focused. Ooh, man. I know this. Um, I have writer's block and I'm generally just having a difficult time starting. Do you have any advice or strategies to help me get going? I was just in this place. Do you want to do you want to start Daphne? You know, I actually feel like I could probably learn something from you. Um to our listeners, I just recently moved away from campus and I started writing my dissertation proposal and it it took me a good six to eight weeks of not doing very much at home before I actually got going. I feel like I'm still figuring things out. My biggest thing is actually creating a space where I want to work and like getting away from the bed or the couch. So I actually fixed up a really nice office for myself. And two, really trying to learn and figure out when I work best and deciding that every day, this is my time. I am actually a night worker. I feel most alert at like 11, 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock at night. And that can be difficult, but I'm like, if I'm wasting the entire day, I have to say, okay, midnight to three or midnight to four is my work time. 
you, you just have to figure out what works for you. And, th- and that's what works for me. Cause I was setting up, oh, I'm going to work from 8 a.m. to noon every day. And it wasn't happening. And I just wasn't getting anything done until I was like, okay, I'm actually a midnight or late night worker. And this is my everyday work time. So those are things that work for me. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And once you figure out what is working for you, uh, schedule is everything. Like, you know, when I went back home at first, I was like, every day is writing day. I will write every day, please. Okay. Like I have to schedule everything. I have to schedule lunch, like wake up at 9am, put on alarm so you don't oversleep. I'm going to write They say what's best is about three-hour stretches. Um, So I started off scheduling it by three-hour bursts of writing and then a break, three hours and then a break. Um, For me, that changed, right? I allowed myself the flexibility that if I was on a roll and I was really doing something great, I wouldn't stop after three hours. But in the same breath, if I was just having a day that focus was really hard for me, I would give myself a break and only do an hour um, and maybe then take my break. Um, I scheduled workout time, all of my mental health time. Um, Make sure you have snacks on deck, really good like snacks, nothing too heavy. No, seriously, because like eating, you either forget to do it or like you're trying to compensate. You eat something too heavy. Now you want to take a nap. Ooh, it's like really tough to like strike a good balance for writing all day, uh, especially from home. And I think uh, I eventually got to the place where like I had to find different environments. Like, so for maybe about a month and a half, Dunkin' Donuts. I had to leave the house and I had to go to Dunkin' Donuts and that's where I was doing a lot of my writing. Unfortunately, when you leave the house, you tend to also spend money. So be aware of that, right? Because then your snackage is happening in Dunkin' Donuts, for example, and I'm buying donuts to like keep going. Um, Then I switched over (laughs) to local libraries, which I found much better and cheaper because I could bring my own snacks. And so all the local libraries in my area, um, I was able to like, go and find a place that I can sit and write. Um, and I even like started writing for a little bit in the lobby of this yoga studio I go to because <laughs> it was like really Zen and they have like free tea. They're like, Hey Rachel, nice to see you again. Um, so those are my tips. That's how I got through writing at home. Um, But, you know, also don't be too hard on yourself. Writing is hard. It takes a long time. And really the magic is in editing. We always put so much pressure to write and like to write a lot. Write as much as you can, read it, and then go back and start editing and see where you got to fill in holes. And before you know it, you'll have a 300-page dissertation. At least I did. (laughs) I would say amen to that. Once I got over thinking that I had to immediately have perfection on the page, I was definitely able to overcome like those failure to launch kind of stage in terms of writing. I My writing process is I typically go from like the research phase. I just kind of like want to go through my sources and find quotes that are interesting, find passages that are interesting and reflect on those in writing. So I'll, I might make a note 
because it just helps me get my creative juices going. And then from there, I just want to put something on a page. Just kind of like, I don't want to say stream of consciousness because I'm definitely kind of conscious about what I'm putting there. And it's usually informed by what I've recently been reading, but I don't, I don't really care if I don't have the perfect word or if it's not concise because I can do that as long as I give myself time to write or time to edit and revise, it'll be good. So I definitely agree with that. And I'm actually like you, I'm going to start going to the library because that's one of the reasons I hadn't been trying to write outside of the home is because I'm, I'm on a budget and I just know I usually feel really bad going into like cafes and coffee shops and not buying anything and just like using up the Wi-Fi. So, um, yeah, I might try the library. Yeah. And also try places that don't have Wi-Fi <laughs> that really will force you to write. I mean, there's no like Facebook check that turns into an hour long like Facebook time, you know. Oh, um, that's good. Have you actually heard of uh, this kind of app that you can download download onto your computer? It's called Antisocial. And it you can set a timer on Antisocial to where it will literally block you from being able to go to whatever websites you put in. So if you put in Facebook, you know, Twitter, whatever it is, it will block it for however many hours or for however long you put it in. That's a great idea. I wish I knew about that. I might download it. I'm trying to write some articles this summer. Yeah, I did it, but it kind of messed up on me for a second. And like, it just, it it wouldn't turn them back on. And I had to like take it off, but I had the free version of it. So I don't, I don't know, maybe if you pay for it, but I was just like, okay, I don't want you to block it forever. Right. Oh my gosh. I can imagine like the panic of like, oh no, but Twitter, I need to, I hear something's trending on black Twitter right now. I got to look. Yeah. But I, I was a lot more productive. I even blocked email. Because I feel like email is a great way to procrastinate. Oh, my God. Email is such a time suck. It will take all your... I, you know, all the advice on to be productive says do not look at your email first thing in the morning. And they're right. Because when I look at my email first thing in the morning, I'm not starting my work until like 10, 11. Because mm-hmm. I'm spending two hours on replying to emails and all the links. Oh, this store has a sale. <laughs> you just told on yourself, Rachel. I did. I, I just Shop looked behind. though. A window shop. That's all. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, that was a tangent, but I hope it was useful. Yeah. Um, oh, I want to add one last thing to that as well. When you start writing, or when I started writing, I read about writing. Um, and I actually, I kind of like that. I read like there's, I, I can't think of the title exactly. I think it's called writing for social scientists and writing a dissertation, but I read all these different books about dissertation writing to give me a sense of like what good advice was out there. So I didn't commit any major faux pas and just waste time. You know, what? as soon as you said that I looked above me, cause I have like books above my desk and I literally pulled out the Howard Becker Writing for Social Sciences. It was one of the first books that my graduate school program assigned to us. Uh, we can put some more resources because I definitely have a couple more books that might be good for for writing. But Writing for Social Sciences, it is a really good book. I, I would also recommend that. Yeah, we'll add it to the Ebony Tower syllabus. 
Yes. Okay. Question number five. Dear Ebony, do you have any advice on removing a faculty member from a PhD committee? I'm tired of one of my doctoral committee members taking ideas from researchers and community members that she meets through me. She just published an important piece that basically sets up the argument for my dissertation, but she did not ask me to co-author the paper. She didn't even cite my book chapter on the topic. In fact, she has never asked me to co-author anything with her despite our overlapping research. She even dissuaded me from submitting a paper to a big conference this year, although she was organizing the section I wanted to submit to. I submitted the paper anyway, and she declined it. Luckily, it was accepted in another section. Unfortunately, she is the only person in the U.S. doing the research I'm doing, and she has other skills that I want to learn from her. She's not a bad person, but she's a crappy mentor. I don't think she even understands what she's doing in terms of taking from me. Do I remove her from my committee after burning me more than once? Oh, that is tough. Uh, Well, first of all, tackle what we said earlier, um, Removing someone from your committee is a huge political move um, that egos are invested in when once you become a committee member and to leave is often a problem. Um, I considered this for a brief moment with my dissertation committee. Um, what happened when I really gave it some true thought is that I realized the person, the only person that it would make sense putting in place of this other person, uh, other people on my committee didn't want to work with. I know it sounds so dramatic, but actually this happens quite a bit. So one thing I'd say is think about what really happens if you remove this person from your committee, what kinds of ways they can retaliate against you, and also who you would even mm-hmm. be able to put in that spot and what your other committee members would have to say about that. Mm-hmm. So I would say if you have a good relationship with your advisor, This is where, you know, you don't spill all the tea because they are colleagues. But is there any way you can maybe have, you know, a subtle conversation with your advisor about these dynamics and what you should do? Because I know sometimes advisors will be like, nah, I don't want this person on the committee because we don't we don't get along or whatever it is. So if you do have I have that type of relationship with my advisor to where I could say if I, you know, had some reservations or I wasn't sure about a particular committee member, my advisor would be someone that I could talk to about that without me being afraid that it's you know, going to go back to anyone. But kind of like Rachel said, like, especially if this person is the only person in the United States that focuses on this topic, that means they're probably fairly influential. Yeah, I agree. So it's kind of like you have to navigate this really well because it could really bite you in the behind. Because first of all, you know, you have to also think about this long term because I know when it's time to get tenure, you know, you submit names of people who should be able to evaluate you on this particular topic. 
And in addition to you submitting names, people in the field might know that, okay, this might be a good person to call on to write a letter about whether this person is a good scholar and whether their scholarship is good. So it's not even thinking about things right now. It is thinking about things long term. Yeah. And so I... I don't know. If this person wasn't the only person, I might be like, okay, this is a toxic situation. Maybe you should like let it go. But considering that they're the only person in the field, I would also, if if you feel like this person is very naive to what they're doing, maybe talk to them about co-authoring a paper instead of assuming that they will come to you. Because at this point, they probably see themselves as senior. So why would I ask this junior person to co-author with me? So maybe reach out to this person to co-author papers. Um in terms of like turning down your your presentation for the conference, that was kind of sucky because I feel like committee members are supposed to be your biggest advocates. They're supposed to be the ones pushing your work and not necessarily in competition with you. So I do feel like there are some dynamics that you really need to watch out for. I do think it is a risky move to completely remove them um, without thinking about the long-term repercussions. And that is when I would talk to a very senior scholar, maybe your advisor, maybe someone else, to really figure out how to navigate this without it burning you, not only now, but when you're on the tenure track and you're up for tenure. Yeah. Because she sounds like the type of person that would definitely be someone that they would call on to evaluate your tenure portfolio. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. Some dynamics of the letter seem a little bit shady and like competition, uh, in which case I would say also, you know, be a little bit more strategically minded. So maybe you approach them about co-authoring. And if that doesn't work, if if they decline, you know, which I wouldn't be surprised since they did not accept your paper for that section. Uh, this person did not. Uh, I would say you want to make sure that it's clear what work you're producing. Um, and so mm-hmm. maybe that means not sharing every thought you have with this person until you know mm-hmm. your name is out there for this idea or whatever it is. So, you know, I hate to put the added burden on you, um, but I think, you know, publish as quickly as you can, maybe even just wherever you can, just so that your name is out there as producing a particular idea, you know, rather than letting someone else co-opt that idea before you even get your yourself in the race. Yeah. And I would say that's also a risk that comes with co-authoring is that you might potentially be perceived as a mini her or him. And you might not be carving your own niche where people see you as an expert. They just see you as an extension of this person. So that that is a risk. I would also say for people who are not in this situation, but are thinking about putting committees together, you do have to be strategic. It's always good to ask other graduate students their experiences about working with someone. I mean, of course, you know, shape your own opinion of this person. But, you know, maybe this person has a reputation of 
borrowing from students. And that's the type of thing that you want to know before you add them to your committee, if that is something that you're worried about. Like if you have a very unique idea and you don't want someone who is senior to you publishing on it because then they will be credited for that idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when it comes to committee members, there's always like those different types of tropes that are recurrent, right? So you'll have the committee member who's like very like always giving you comments and fix this and fix that. And then another trope is the committee member who's like doesn't read your dissertation until like the day before the defense, you know, (laughs) or the person who like ignores it for months and then all of a sudden tells you to change everything. So yeah, you definitely want to know which of these like stereotypes or what kind of style of committee membership each one of the faculty members you put on your committee uh, is, is, is displaying because, you know, matching them all up together as well is, is, is something you have to think about. The type A personality doesn't always like fare well if there's another type A and then there's kind of, you're in the middle trying to decide whose idea you should privilege over the other. I mean, it's tense stuff. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I feel like your last comment spoke to, it's not just about expertise. It's also about personality. Oh, yeah. And you don't want anyone also that's going to hold you up. I know that there were people that, you know, I had thought about, but, you know, they kind of had a reputation of like, you know, my their students are there forever because they have these last minute critiques or, or whatever it is. And yes, I want my work to be good. You know, I don't want anybody just passing me through, but I have my own timeline. So these are the types of things that you just have to look out for and think about and sometimes go beyond expertise. Yeah. So I had an oral exam committee and my dissertation committee, although there are some overlapping members, it is not the same. My oral exam committee had a bunch of people like it was it was four people. We only needed three. And some of the expertise was overlapping, but there was also some clash because I had some people that were like political science, you know, I had a psychologist, I had a sociologist. I had like, so it's just kind of like, there wasn't enough harmony. So for my dissertation committee, you know, I wanted someone that had like substantive expertise and I only need one. I don't need two, three, four people that know all of the exact same things. And then I wanted some methods people. And then I also thought about the types of jobs that I wanted after the fact. So I have a political scientist. I have like a political sociologist that deals with race. And then my advisor who focuses on like immigration and education. And I just tried to keep it simple. Keep it simple, sister. There were other people that I thought about adding to my committee, and it was really tough to not have them on there, even people that were on the oral exam committee. But I was like, at the end of the day, this is my process. This is about me. And I kept it simple. I didn't want any overlapping things because I don't want arguments about like, okay, he said this, she said this, and now I'm caught in the middle. Just think about these things strategically for those who are still thinking about putting committees together. That's great advice, Daphne. Well, 
We completed our first session of Ask Ebony Anything. I know. Like this turned into, I, I saw those five questions. I was like, okay, this will be quick. I mean, this is a short episode, but like, okay, th- this really leads to tangents and other conversations. So we really want to hear from you guys. Yes, yes. Email us. Please. Tweet us. Please. Join our Facebook group. Ask some of your questions. You can even send us questions through DM. You can slide into our DMs. Yes, slide into our DMs. You know, we didn't use anyone's names. And even if you say anything too specific, we will try to anonymize things a bit. So it's it's not quite obvious because I feel like these questions are things that anyone can learn from. So. We look forward to future episodes of Ask Ebony Anything. Thank you for spending this time listening to us. Bye. If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.theebonytower.com, or email us at info at Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.